0: Good morning. morning. Thank you, Caleb, for this morning's TED Talk. I'd like to encourage... As Caleb said, my name is Mike Negley, and it's my honor and privilege to bring to you a message from God's holy word this morning. Let me start by saying that it's indeed ironic that I am preaching on this text, on this morning, on this, the eve of my 18th wedding anniversary. Yes, I have been married for 18 years. Let's see the uh, two crazy kids up there. Um, to my lovely wife Heidi for 18 years tomorrow. So, this is my anniversary Eve. And it's been 18 years of nonstop bliss and. I say it's. Rob, calm down. I say it's ironic because the first verse in this morning's text, Isaiah 50, verse 1, reads as follows. Thus says the Lord, where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Happy anniversary, Heidi. And please don't get any bright ideas when you hear this morning's sermon. Ladies and gentlemen, seriously, please open in your Bibles to the book of Isaiah chapter 50. And keep open to that chapter as we'll walk through the text together this morning. Now, there'll be many, as usual with me, me, there's going to be a lot of cross-references, and they're going to be on the screen, Lord willing, so you can keep your home base in your own Bible in Isaiah chapter 50. But before we do, obviously, we need to ask the Lord for eyes to see and for ears to hear what he has to say to us through uh, the words of Isaiah the prophet this morning. So please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we indeed come to you asking for your help. Dear Lord, we can learn nothing, we can understand nothing without your enabling grace. So Lord, we like to laugh, we like to enjoy ourselves, but Lord, allow us to have a serious mind as we seek your truth from your word this morning. I pray that you would guide what I say, that you would have people hear only what comes directly from your word. Anything that is not of it, allow me not to say it or have them not hear it. Lord, I pray that this would be your word to us from your holy word this morning. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, if you've been with us for the last number of weeks on Sunday, we've been going through the book of Isaiah chapter by chapter, verse by verse. And as a quick review, we know that Isaiah the prophet prophesied both to the northern kingdom, Israel, and also to the southern kingdom, Judah. And he's been uh, prophesying in the previous number of chapters about the coming captivity in Babylon for Judah. Now, this was still a ways off, about 80 or 90 years in their future. But the Lord, speaking through Isaiah, warns them that it's indeed coming their way. But he also prophesies that their deliverance would also be coming their way. And deliverance would come in the person and work of, say with me, the pagan Persian King Cyrus. Now, I know I tricked you, but if you've been here, you know that we were talking about the pagan King Cyrus because the Lord will use him eventually to bring the people back into Jerusalem. Now, if you thought I was speaking about someone else, I can't blame you because in this text and in this book, King Cyrus here functions as many other Old Testament figures do as types of Christ, by foreshadows, by types, by signs, all of these uh, people having immediate reality and meaning, but all pointing to a future and ultimate fulfillment in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So after chapters 48 and 49, where God is promising deliverance for Judah and punishment for Babylon, he begins chapter 50 with these two rhetorical questions. So in your Bible, please look at Isaiah 50 verse 1 and listen as I read it aloud where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? So question number one is where is the certificate of divorce? Now, what is the Lord referencing here? What is a certificate of divorce? Well, if you recall in the New Testament, the Pharisees test the Lord Jesus regarding divorce. In Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 to 9, we read, Now, there's so much here in Matthew 19 that we can unpack, especially regarding society's confusion uh, about the creation order. But today's text is Isaiah 50. So for us today, suffice it to say that Moses did indeed give instructions regarding certificates of divorce. That's found in Deuteronomy 24. But the people perverted this allowance to include any and all reasons. Nevertheless, we need to understand that the Mosaic law... And Jesus' explanation of it, agree. They agree that if there was something adulterous in the woman, unfaithfulness of some kind, then the certificate was allowed, although God hates divorce because marriage is a picture of Christ in his church. So in Isaiah chapter 50, verse 1, the Lord poses the first question, where is the certificate of divorce? And in Judah's case, the implied answer is, there isn't one. There isn't one. Now, stay with me. Yes, maybe in the situation with the northern kingdom, which was Israel, when Assyria came in and invaded them and took them away, there was a certificate. You know, the northern kingdom never returned. They intermarried with the pagan peoples around them, and by the time of Christ, they were known as the Samaritans. Maybe for Israel, there was a certificate, but in Judah's case, there wasn't any certificate of divorce, nor would there be, although there would be a time of separation. So question number one, where is Judah's certificate of divorce? Answer number one, there isn't one. In the same verse in Isaiah 50 verse 1, we read, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold them? Creditors. You can just taste the sarcasm dripping from the Lord's loaded question. Whoever loaned me anything that I should have to pay them back? Here's what the sovereign Lord says in Psalm 50, verse 12. He says, if I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and all its fullness are mine. Ladies and gentlemen, God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He doesn't need anything from us. So Paul says in Romans 11:35. we sing it every time we use it as a doxology. Paul says, for who has given to God that God should repay them? The implied answer is no one. And the implied answer to God's second question in Isaiah 51 is to no one. So now we have a question in our minds. Well, why? Why then is Babylon coming for Judah? Let's continue on in verse 1. The Lord says through Isaiah, Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So why will they be sold to Babylon? For iniquities and transgressions, idolatry, sinfulness, unbelief. Now, even though there would not be a certificate of divorce for Judah, there was spiritual adultery found in her. So therefore, they will be sold, but sold not because of some imaginary debt that God old Babylon, but because of their own unfaithfulness. And keep in mind that it is God who will use Babylon to chastise Judah in the first place. Remember what the Lord says through the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 43, verse 10. He says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will send and take Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and I will set his throne above these stones that I have hidden, and he will spread his royal canopy over them. So Nebuchadnezzar, God calls his servant. When Assyria comes and punishes Israel, he calls Assyria the rod of his anger. And later we'll see uh, King Cyrus of Persia, he says, I will raise him up. So no, the Lord didn't sell Judah to pay a debt. He gave them over as the due penalty of their unrepentant sin. Or he will give them over soon enough. And in that day, they will not be able to say that he didn't warn them. Look at verse 2. Why when I came, was there no man? Why when I called, was there no one to answer? Yahweh's commands, his warnings, his calls to repentance through Isaiah and the other prophets went mostly unheeded. He came, there was no one there. He called, no one answered. They sent him straight to voicemail. But they had his law. They had the Torah. They had the Psalms. They had the Proverbs. The book of the law had just been found in the temple. And King Josiah attempted some reforms. But to loosely quote John Calvin, the heart of man is an idol-making factory. Brothers and sisters, human beings, you and me have no shortage of false gods ready to jump in to the void left when we abandon the one true and living God. Amen? So the Lord then sent prophets speaking in his name, but the people did not listen. The Lord said back in Isaiah chapter 30, verses 9 to 11, for they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord who say to the seers, do not see, and the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things, prophesy illusions, leave the way, turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Not only did they refuse to listen, they actually told God's prophets to tell them that we're okay. Basically lie to us, make us feel good. Don't tell us the truth. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. But it didn't stop there. The Lord Jesus, in condemning the religious leaders of his day, says in Matthew 23, verses 29 to 31, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you build the tombs of the prophets and decorate the monuments of the righteous, saying, if we had lived in the days of our fathers, we would not have taken part with them in shedding the blood of the prophets. Thus you are witnesses against yourselves that you are sons of those who murdered the prophets. Murdered the prophets. Now tradition tells us that Isaiah himself was eventually put to death by Manasseh, the evil king of Judah. The method it was believed was that he was cut, he was sawn in two, like it says in Hebrews 11 in the Faith Hall of Fame. See, people didn't want to hear the truth then, and they don't want to hear the truth now. So in Isaiah 50, verse 2, the Lord came and he called, but Judah did not show up, nor did she answer. It was as if Judah did not believe that the Lord could forgive them and deliver them. Well, maybe that's why he reminds them also in verse 2 by saying this. Is my hand shortened that it cannot redeem? Or have I no power to deliver? In other words, God asks, have I become weak in my old age? Or do I lack the ability to do whatever I want? And so, as in other places in the Old Testament, the Lord shares a little bit of his resume He does this in Job. He does this in Exodus and Jeremiah as well. Isaiah 50 verse 2 continues by saying, Behold, by my rebuke I dry up the sea. I make the rivers a desert. The fish stink for lack of water and die of thirst. I clothe the heavens with blackness and make sackcloth their covering. Now, he's clearly alluding to the Exodus from Egypt, right? A story that they would know of, especially if they just tried to start the Passover again. And as he rescued his people from the mighty Pharaoh, whom he raised up in the first place, he can and will rescue his people from the mighty Nebuchadnezzar. Now remember, in verses 1 and 2, the Lord gave them the bad news, that they will be sold because of their sins. But then comes the good news, that the Lord is still mighty to save, And he will save Judah and deliver them out of bondage. And ladies and gentlemen, this coming physical redemption of Judah is a picture of the coming spiritual redemption of all of God's people, of the Jew and Gentile alike, his elect people. And he will send his servant, the Messiah, the actual Messiah, to accomplish this. And it's in the book of Isaiah that we have a record of what's known as the four Servant songs. Now you've heard of that. Both Caleb and Steve have explored the previous two servant songs in Isaiah 42 and Isaiah 49, respectively. So here in today's verse, in today's chapter, chapter 50, we have the third servant song, and that's going to be found in verses 4 to 9. And Lord willing, in a few weeks from now, we'll examine the fourth and most famous servant song found in Isaiah chapters 52 and 53. John MacArthur describes the third servant song like this. He calls it Messiah's soliloquy about being perfected through obedience and sufferings. So we are able to look at this through the eyes of someone who is going to come and rescue all of us. So the third servant song here seems to divide it into three sections. The first section, verses 4 and 5, will be the obedient servant. Verse 6 will be the suffering servant. And verses 7 to 9 will be the trusting servant. But before we do, we need to be reminding a little bit about Old Testament messianic prophecy. Like I said at the outset of the sermon, there's usually a more immediate context and fulfillment of each prophecy. I mean, one that applies directly to and affects those to whom it's made. Something they can look to and experience during their generation before an eventual and future application can be made. One such example that usually comes to my mind is the prophecy regarding the virgin conceiving and bearing a son who should be called Emmanuel. Caleb discussed this last week in his sermon. And we know, everyone here knows that Isaiah is prophesying about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. I mean, there's no doubt. Matthew 1, 21 to 23 clearly explains the birth of Jesus by the Virgin Mary. And this is the ultimate fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. In Matthew 1, to 23, we read, She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we know that now. But when Isaiah first uttered the words of this prophecy, back in chapter 7, he was speaking to King Ahaz, the king of Judah. And the prophecy was regarding the birth of Isaiah's own son, Meher Shalal Hashbaz. That could be a name that you would, you know, I wouldn't doubt it. but stick with me. It was the birth of his son that would signal events that were about to take place, namely the Assyrian attacks, the invasions and plunderings. And in other words, the nations that were making uh, 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 um, Israel afraid would be defeated. Okay. And the proof that Isaiah's message was truly from the Lord is the fact that these events did take place. It says, before the boy, which was Isaiah's son, knows how to refuse evil and choose the good, these things would occur, etc., cetera, et cetera, And then in Isaiah chapter 8, verse 4, the proof that what Isaiah spoke regarding Assyria taking the northern kingdom was that it would happen, Isaiah 8, 4, before the boy knows how to cry father or my mother. So in other words, before Isaiah's son, Meher Shalah Hashbaz, would learn how to talk, Assyria would plunder Damascus and Samaria. This, brothers and sisters, was the immediate fulfillment of that Old Testament prophecy. But stick with me. The ultimate fulfillment, what the signs truly pointed to, was the birth of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. And there are many, many other examples of this type in Scripture. So now, from that little detour, let's return to Isaiah 50 and keep that in mind as we examine and explore the third servant song, here, starting in verses 4 and 5. So in your own Bibles, here's verse 4. The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens. He awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious. I turned not backward. So here we see, number one, the obedient servant. Now, Like any other Old Testament prophecy, the immediate context and fulfillment, Isaiah himself was an obedient servant. He has been enabled by the Lord to comfort the weary by choice words. Isaiah has been doing this for many chapters so far in the way that he's been assuring Judah as a nation that deliverance will be coming. Yes, hard times are on their way, but so is salvation. Now, it's important to know that Isaiah wasn't a robot, someone who went into a trance like a fortune teller. Rather, he's given the ability by God's grace to prophesy and to properly speak God's warnings and God's promises. Now, this is true of Isaiah, who was given the tongue of the learned or of the trained or of the educated. And this is also true of the other Old Testament prophets. It was true of John the Baptist. And by extension, it is true to one degree or another of all ministers of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, when it comes to elders, pastors, preachers, and teachers, we are not speaking new words of revelation or prophesying. But we are bringing God's written word to bear. We're bringing his written word into the counseling session. We're bringing his written word to the Bible study during the evangelistic outreach and for the Sunday sermon. Now, as uh, Steve said on Wednesday, we need to prepare long and hard, okay? We need to prepare, we need to study, we need to train, and we need to practice. But in the end, it is God that does the teaching. It is God that does the enabling, and it's God that does the blessing of the preacher. And hearer, it is also God. It is God that does the convicting. It's God that does the encouraging. And, it, and it's God that gives the ability to obey what has been preached. It's all by God's grace. Now Isaiah goes on in 50 verse 4. He says, Morning by morning, he, God, awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Another word for taught would be or discipled. This, I believe, deals with having ears to hear. That's how the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint, renders it in this text. The Lord grants ears to hear and understand his word. Obviously, Isaiah and the other prophets needed to understand what they were saying. Again, they didn't go into a trance and speak words of gibberish. They had to understand the message they were giving, at least in its immediate context. And also, there might be an element of hearing the words of those to whom they're speaking. I mean, you don't ever like to talk to somebody and know they're not listening to a word you're saying. So we need to give the same respect to people that are speaking to us, to actually understand what people are telling us before we come back with a counter-argument. And brothers and sisters, as we also need to hear what the Word has to say to us in order to obey it, ourselves, number one. And number two, we need to hear the Word, what it has to say to us, in order to instruct others in the way. So in verse 5, Isaiah mentions the fact that the Lord has opened his ear. This may also have the connotation of being able to hear, but many commentators believe this may be referencing the boring of the ear of a former Hebrew slave that wished to remain with his master. If you look at Exodus 21, verses 5 and 6, it says, But if the slave plainly says, I love my master and my wife and my children, I will not go out free, then his master shall bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door of the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be a slave forever. Now this application is plausible, as Isaiah is the Lord's servant, and in the New Testament the Apostle Paul calls himself a bondslave of Christ, and he s- says this is true of all born-again believers. In Romans chapter six, verse twenty-two, he says, "But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life." So as God's prophet, Isaiah is his bond slave, and he could do nothing else other than serve the Lord. Just ask Jonah what happens when a true prophet of God tries to flee from the Lord. So Isaiah ends the verse with, and I was not rebellious. Now this is very important, especially as we now look unto the song's ultimate fulfillment, the obedient servant, the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 8, verses 28 to 29, it says, So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And He who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to Him. Notice in verse 28 that Jesus himself mirrors the language used in Isaiah. He says, but I speak just as the Father taught me. And then he says, I always do what pleases the Father. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 7, the writer writes, Then I, Jesus, said, behold, I have come down to do your will, O God, as it is written in the scroll of the book. A few chapters earlier in Hebrews, in Hebrews 5:8. It says of him, although he, Jesus, was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And finally, in Philippians 2.8, Paul writes, And Jesus, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Yes, our Lord was obedient, He was voluntarily subservient to his father. Though equal in power, authority, and might, and essence, being in very nature God, he was obedient. Not counting equality with God a thing to be held on to, but he emptied himself. Not only forsaking the worship of angels, not only living in this fallen world, but suffering at the hands of sinful men. And that leads us to the second part of the servant song, Verse 6, the suffering servant. Isaiah 56 says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Yes, things probably similar to this happened to Isaiah as well as the other prophets. It certainly happened to the apostles who all except for John were put to death on account of their faith. It happened to the early Christian martyrs being persecuted by Rome. And it happened to the Protestant believers during the Inquisition by the Roman Catholic Church. And brothers and sisters, it still happens to Christians around the world this very day. Persecuted, tortured, and even murdered for the sake of the gospel. Now, we, we are called by the Lord to turn the other cheek. To let the unbeliever slap them both. Well, Christ could command that, and he did command that but he also experienced it firsthand. In Matthew 26, verses 67 to 68, it says, Then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, Prophesy to us, you Christ, who is it that struck you? We knew this already, right? We knew that already. When we get to Isaiah 52 and 53, in a couple of weeks, we'll read more familiar verses regarding the suffering servant. You know, his appearance being marred beyond human semblance, him being despised, rejected, a man of sorrow, well acquainted with grief, smitten by God and afflicted, pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, just to name a few. But here in Isaiah 50, in the third servant song, we get just the taste of what the Lord would endure prior to his crucifixion. Yes, he suffered as the suffering servant. But nevertheless, hear this, he trusted his God. And so that leads us to part three of the servant song this morning, The Trusting Servant, verses seven to nine. So look in your Bible, starting in verse seven. It says, but the Lord God helps me. Therefore, I have not been disgraced. Now, Isaiah knew that the word he spoke was God's word. And that although he might suffer for it, He would be held up by the Lord. Continuing in verse 7. Therefore I've set my face like flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. He knows it. He knows it. And this, brothers and sisters, is the confidence we all must have when we bring forth God's written word. We know it's his word. We know that it's never going to return void we know that it's always going to accomplish that for which it's been purposed. And applying this part of the song to Christ now, who obviously is the ultimate fulfillment, in Luke nine fifty one, we read this of Jesus. It says, When the days were near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. The NASB says he was determined to go to Jerusalem. The New King James puts it like this. He steadfastly set his face to go. And the NIV renders it, he resolutely set out for Jerusalem. Therefore, I have set my face like flint, says the trusting servant. See, Jesus knew he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die. I mean, he knew it. In Matthew 16, verse 21, we read, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem to suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Yet he set his face like flint. And when Peter foolishly tries to dissuade him from going, how does Jesus reply? Matthew 16, 23, he says, get behind me, Satan, for you are a hindrance to me. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God on the things of man. What a sharp rebuke. He was set to go, and Peter tried to pull him aside, and he had to turn right back. See, Jesus was resolute in his messianic mission, and he knew that God was with him. Continuing in Isaiah 50, verses 8 and 9, it says, He who vindicates me is near. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. Who would declare me guilty? Behold, all of them wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. So, as we now move quickly from immediate context and fulfillment in Isaiah to ultimate fulfillment of Christ, and then to us, we see with Isaiah number one, Isaiah's complete confidence in the Lord his God to see him through. He had complete confidence in the Lord his God to see him through. And this is how Isaiah lived his life and fulfilled his mission. After seeing the Lord Jesus high and lifted up in the temple back in Isaiah 6, he lived a life that trusted in his God. And he's extending this admonition to Judah as well. He says, Trust like I trust, O southern kingdom. God will redeem. God will deliver. God will vindicate you in due time. Isaiah knew and trusted that the Lord will hold him up. Next to Christ... Applying this to Jesus, of course, Christ himself fully trusted his Father. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, we read, When he, Jesus, was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges rightly. Amen? So even when he cried out from the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was not doubting Rather, he was fulfilling the Messianic prophecy back from Psalm 22. He fully trusted his father when his wrath was being poured out upon him. It wasn't a moment of weakness. He was proclaiming his Messiahship while enduring the great pain and wrath that we deserved by taking our place. And now, applying it to us, we must trust. Now, if Isaiah 50 verses 8 and 9 remind you of anything, it should. It should remind you of Romans 8. Romans 8 seems to expand on this idea of trust and confidence in the Lord. We read in Romans 8, 31 to 34, Paul writes, What then shall we say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Yes and amen. Romans 8 takes Isaiah 50 to its completed and finalized, it is finished conclusion. In Christ we are safe. In Christ, we are secure. We are eternally secure at his hand. Not only is God for us, not only would God not entertain any accusation against us, not only is it God who justifies, it is Christ who died for us, paying our sin debt to God. It is Christ who was raised for us, giving us his perfect record. And it is Christ who prays for us, who intercedes on our behalf. Therefore all truly born again believers are eternally secure in Christ. That is a fact. And that concludes the third servant song in Isaiah 50. Now leaving the song for a minute, in the next verse Isaiah makes an appeal to believers that have temporarily lost their way. And I in fear and trembling make the same appeal to you this morning gateway. In Isaiah 50:10, he writes, "Who among you fears the Lord?" And obeys the voice of his servant. Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Repentance. Repent, repent, repent. Turn away from unbelief. Turn away from lack of trust. Turn away from any intentional sin. We know that a believer does not walk in darkness. A believer in Christ has been delivered from the domain of darkness and has been transferred to the kingdom of Christ and into his marvelous light. Isaiah's immediate audience would have needed to repent and believe just like us. Casting away idols, looking to God's word, looking to Christ in a veiled way, but trusting in God's future deliverance, first from Babylon and then ultimately from their sins. Brothers and sisters, we see it in Scripture And we see it here in Isaiah 50. Listen carefully. Sin and self sufficiency is such a heinous transgression in God's sight. The sin of self sufficiency, I can do it, is a heinous sin in God's sight. Pride, independence, anything that implies that we do not need the Lord is what needs to be eliminated. This goes for the inhabitants of Judah, Isaiah's original audience, and the same goes for you and me today. Rely on your God. Rely on your God. Continuing to the end of of the chapter, we find a warning to those who did not fear God, to the unbelievers that walked in their own way. The last verse, verse 11, says, Behold, all you who kindle a fire... Who equip yourselves with burning torches, walk by the light of your fire, and by the torches that you have kindled. This you have from my hand, you shall lie down in torment. Those that heard Isaiah's warnings, yet resolved to take care of themselves, would be judged, and they were judged. The imagery of torches and lighting their own fires may have the connotation of pagan worship it, or idolatry, a ritual of some kind. Whatever it involved, whatever the specifics were, it all boiled down to trusting in self and not trusting in the Lord for their salvation. It all boiled down to trusting in themselves and not trusting in the Lord for their salvation. And it's the same for unbelievers today. To anyone here that is not put your faith in Christ whatever flavor of sin rules your life whatever or whomever you worship besides God whatever methods you are attempting to use to save yourself or just to ease your conscience know that nothing will succeed nothing will succeed nothing will give you the peace that you are looking for and Isaiah 50:11 the Lord goes even a step further basically tells them You've made your bed, now go lie in it. You've kindled your own light. It's not the true light, because I'm the true light, but you've kindled it and I walk by it. Use it to see, use it to keep warm. I'm giving you over, like it says in Romans 1. Enjoy it for now, make the most of it, eat, drink, and be merry. Before you, for tomorrow you're going to die. Do what is right in your own eyes. Follow your heart. You do you. And isn't this the advice of the world today? You know what? It always was. It always was. There's nothing new under the sun. New age really isn't new. Yes, Christians, we look at the twenty first century and we say, how has it gotten so bad? It started in the garden. See, deep in the reservoir of man's heart, mind, and soul, it seems right to us. It seems right to us to go with what we feel like doing. But in the end, it only leads one place. It leads to death. And know that if you continue on this, broad path that leads only to destruction, you shall lie down in torment. And this, he says, you have from my hand. He says, I'm coming for you. I'm coming to judge you for your sin and unbelief. You have nothing to look forward to but God's judgment and a fury of fire that will consume his adversaries. And this, ladies and gentlemen, is the truth. So in conclusion, we know that the prophet Isaiah was sent out to a stiff-necked nation. He was tasked with warning Judah of the coming Babylonian khaki. He admonished them to repent, to believe, and to turn to their God. Babylon was definitely coming. They would be taken, removed from the land, but the Lord would, at the appointed time, come to bring them back. If you're keeping up with the Bible reading, we're in Nehemiah, and they're starting to rebuild the wall, and that's after all this takes place. So the Lord would bring them back, and he did bring them back. In this chapter of Isaiah, he is clear that it was their sin that caused their temporary separation not some debt God owed to Babylon. But God was faithful even though they weren't. And God is powerful, just like he was in Egypt. And he can, and he would, and he did deliver them. Then, in review, we looked at the third servant song where Isaiah described the servant's obedience, described the servant's suffering, described the servant's trust in his God. He prophesied about the coming Messiah, Jesus Christ, who wouldn't just save Judah, but would save people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Therefore, God's people must repent and believe. And to unbelievers, you must repent and believe as well. Because if the unbeliever chooses to light their own fire, to go their own way, they will earn their sinful wages, which is death, eternal death, which is eternal conscious punishment in hell. So, you have two choices. Either Christ paid for your sins on the cross, or you will pay for them for all eternity. So please, if you heard nothing today, I beg you, as a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ, run to Jesus. Do it now. Repent of your sins. Turn away from them. Your unbelief. Your self-worship. Take yourself off the throne. You're not the most important person in your own life even. Run to Christ. Ask him to save you. He'll never turn anyone away who runs to him in faith. But bow to him as Lord of your life. Acknowledge your inability to save yourself and trust in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins. Don't delay. Do it now. Amen. Now I have four quick points of application for you this morning. And they're going to be on the screen. Based on Isaiah 50, application number one is cherish the chastisement. Cherish the chastisement. It doesn't seem to make sense, but it will. When chastisement comes, when discipline comes, don't blame God, first of all. He sent it, but know that he disciplines those that he loves, and he disciplines his children. Admit that it was your sin that brought it upon you. Accept responsibility for it. Take your medicine. Repent and believe the gospel, and then wait upon God. Cherish the chastisement. Application point number two, study the scriptures. Study the scriptures. As a Christian, you are an ambassador for Christ. You're not a prophet, but you do have God's written word. Use it. It's not called the sword of the spirit for nothing. Isaiah had the tongue of one who was taught. So study the Bible. Learn from it. Use it to comfort the weary. Use it to warn the sinner. Use it to preach the gospel to yourself first and then to others. Stand on it, trust in it, and then live by it. Study the scriptures. Application point number three, seek the servant Seek the servant. Look to Christ. Study his life. Study his death. Study his resurrection. Learn as much about Jesus as you can from the word. Read the gospels. And then use the information to form your understanding of who he is. A lot of people say they love Jesus, but they don't know who he is. I can't say I know Gideon if I've never met him. Isn't that true? That's part of why we're having these, these times of fellowship. We need to get to know one another. We need to be all out there for each other to see. So I can't say someone's my friend if I don't know who they are or the first thing about them. So use the information you learn to trust in him and then to worship him rightly. So number three was seek the servant. And now application point number four, stay safe and secure In the Savior. You're safe and secure in the Savior. Rest in Christ. He is your Sabbath. We have entered His rest if we've been born again. So rest in Christ. Rejoice in the fact that nothing can separate you from His love. Nothing. Live in light of this truth. Again, we say we believe something, it's how we behave that determines whether or not we believe that or not. If I lend Henry my car and I say, it's safe, you can use it, you wanna come with me? No, I wouldn't get nothing. I mean, I would not do that. I would only lend him something that I trusted to get in myself. Live in light of this truth. Learn from Isaiah and don't be afraid of man. Don't be afraid of the accuser, Satan or of your own self-condemning thoughts. Know that you are secure in Christ. Nothing you feel can change that. He fights for you, he prays for you, he died for you, and he'll never let you go. He is the bridegroom, you as a member of his church are his bride. He will never leave you or forsake you. So, in closing, There will be no certificate of divorce for the Christian. Happy anniversary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your hard truth. We thank you that what you said through Isaiah to Judah thousands of years ago rings true and applies to us today. We know that you are serious about us walking in a manner worthy of the calling. We know that you do not take sin lightly. We rejoice in the fact that you didn't leave us on our own, but you helped the helpless, that you sent your word, you sent your prophets, and then in due time, you sent your son. And we thank you for his life, death, burial, and resurrection for us. Lord, we thank you that when we read your word, your Holy Spirit, which dwells in the believer, convicts us and encourages us. So I pray as I prayed at the outset that anything that was preached this morning that is in accordance with your word, that it would be remembered, called upon, and used to enable us to act accordingly this week. I pray, Heavenly Father, that you would use your word to change us, to mold us into the image of your beloved son, Jesus Christ. And I pray once again that everything we say and do will glorify you and be for our good. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.